0: Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like you to find the second book of your Bible. Whether you have a printed copy, as I always encourage you to bring, or you have an app on your device, I'd like you to find the book of Exodus. And when you find the book of Exodus this morning, I'd like to draw your attention to the third chapter, which may be one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible because of the familiarity of the story. Now, I'm a big believer that it is good for us to study parts of the Bible we've not been exposed to. It's one of the reasons why I'm so deeply convicted about preaching book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through every word of God's Word. But there's also great fruit at times in exploring the stories that we've known, many of you, from childhood. And we come today to one of those stories. that We have baptism this morning, as you've already seen. We'll have it in the latter service. And so, we also welcome not only our online audience, but many family members who may be from other churches or perhaps you're not connected with a church. We just believe that God's Word is sufficient for our lives. And so, we take great care each and every Sunday to take a passage of the Bible and to walk through it together and make that application. It is, of course, the pleasure and the privilege of my life to do this here at Church at the Mill. In fact, I have a life ministry verse. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. If you're familiar with 2 Timothy, you know that's the portion of the Bible, especially in chapter 4, where Paul says, Timothy, preach the word. And that is, of course, articulating that call to pastor and preach in Timothy's life. And while that's a wonderful passage, just a few verses above, it is verse 5 that gripped my heart many years ago, where Paul tells Timothy, as for you, and he contrasts Timothy with false teachers, with peddlers of the Word, with people more interested in their own platform or podium. He says, but as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering Do the work of an evangelist. And then the last phrase is four imperatives in the original language there. The last imperative is the one that is a perfect bridge into our subject today. Paul told Timothy, fulfill your ministry. If I were to condense that into one English word, he would say to Timothy, finish, finish, don't quit, don't back away. Don't we do this in parenting? We don't ever look at our children and say, you must be the smartest child in your class or you're a disappointment to me. We never look at our children and say, if you're not the best athlete on the field, I want to disown you. I hope you don't do that. We don't look at our children and say, if you're not the most successful, the most beautiful, the most popular, then you don't measure up. No, of course not. We love our children unconditionally for no other reason other than they are ours. And if we get mad at them for their lack of athletic ability or artistic ability, remember, it's our genetics. We don't want to curse them. One of my sons at one point in his life said, Dad, am I going to be tall? I said, You better not be. <laughs> I do have one that's 6'2". And I told Laura if he gets any taller, we're going to get some tests done. <laughs> but what we do tell our children is, you're not going to quit. You don't have to play this sport the rest of your life. But if you go out for it, if I spend the money, if I go refinance the house and go to academy and get everything you need, you're going to finish. We tell them when they're nursing that D, trying to get it to a C in that difficult course in college, Hey. Just finish, finish. I've met with many young couples years ago when I did the premarital counseling here at Church at the Mill. More qualified people do that now. But I would say, listen, above everything else, above the love and the romance and all the excitement, just decide, I'm going to keep my vow. Finish. Till one of you dies, finish. Finish. We know if we work in the business world, it is a blessing to employ people who finish. Finish who finish the job, who finish the assignment, who finish. Success comes and goes. Failures are a part of life. But I like to be around finishers. And yet, one of the greatest ways to finish is to remember why you started. To remember what got you on the journey that you are currently on. Any motivator knows that part of motivation is not only to get people looking forward, but to remind them of where they've been. If you've ever set a weight loss goal, you had to write down that first weight and remember it. If you've ever achieved anything financially, you'll find yourself recollecting to where you didn't have two nickels to rub together. If you ever achieved anything athletically or artistically or academically, you you remember the success. But what you remember is the journey and how far you've come. At times when you're celebrating years and years of faithful marriage to your spouse, you would look at them and say, I wouldn't trade it for anything." It hadn't been easy. But through the ups and the downs, we have stayed together and there's great joy in that. That's why we come to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is all about the call of God on Moses' life. It perhaps is the most famous call in all the Bible— It is the call of God that is so famous that the scene has formed a figure of speech. Often you will hear people say, I need to hear from the Lord. I need a burning bush in my life. And when they say, I need to see a burning bush, it is an idiom, a figure of speech referencing back to that moment where from obscurity, God places a call on Moses' life. Chapter 1, we are given the context of this book. I've been telling you this is a journey we need to go on. There are a few reasons why it matters that we go on this journey. First and foremost, we go on this journey because when we see these people and the unfolding of God's grace in their life, we see our own story. In, In other words, we are them. The people of God are still the people of God. We also live in the world they live in. It's still broken. There's still wickedness. God's still redeeming. We serve their God. Their story, Moses' story, the story of Exodus, it's our scripture. And then, of course, finally, we know that the Lord Jesus himself is involved in the Exodus. The New Testament attributes him as the manifestation of God to the people in places where appearances happen. Paul says it. Jude says it. We know that we are to love the Savior of the people of the book of Exodus because he, of course, is still today our Savior. And this whole journey starts well before Moses is called, but it becomes personal to Moses when he actually has a meeting with the Lord. Chapter 3 could be studied in divisions, but to really digest it as a part of God's Word, you have to take all of it. And so, we will very briefly and quickly And when we see this, what we find is that Chapter 3, which is Moses' call from God, has all the ingredients of a great call from God. Now, Moses is not the only one called from God, and it's recorded in Scripture. Isaiah has a great call from God. In the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the heavens. Jeremiah has a call from God. Amos had a call from God. Gideon had a call from God. Mordecai, being used by God, challenged Esther that she had been raised up for such a time as this. We see this in the New Testament as well. I quoted him earlier, but the apostle Paul had this great meeting with the Lord Jesus, and he was called into salvation and called into ministry. But I would say to you that the vast majority of you are not in the clergy. You are a proud member of the laity. You are the backbone of the church. Church of the Mill cannot function were it not for her members serving and ministering. We know that ministry is not just for the people on the stage, that ministry is for all of us, and that God calls out men and women to serve the church. But whether or not your name ever has a reverend in front of it or the office that you serve or live or work in, whether or not it has an ordination certificate on the wall, I believe that every person has callings on their life from the Lord, things that God intends for you to do, which is why we need to study this chapter. We really study it for two reasons. Number one, it's just yet another brick in the foundation of the redemptive plan of God. But number two, I hope by looking at Moses' calling, You're able to see your own. How do we break it down? Well, every good calling begins with a confrontation. Look with me as you see Moses meet God and God meet Moses. Verse 1, Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Mount Horeb, or to Horeb, The mountain of God. By the way, the word Horeb is also interchangeable. It's also called Mount Sinai. Moses is going to meet God on this mountain on several occasions. Same place. Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses did what you and I would do. He looked and said, I'm going to go see what's going on here. I will turn aside to see the great sight. Why is the bush, why this bush is not burned? And when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush. And he says, Moses, Moses, biblical cue here, church family. Whenever there is a repetition of a name, it almost always carries the idea of endearment. God is not trying to scare Moses or intimidate Moses. He is calling Moses to himself. Remember when Jesus was heartbroken over being rejected by his people. The Bible says when he descended into Jerusalem, he sat on the hillside before his arrest, before the Passion Week unfolded, and he cried out, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I long to gather you to myself. So this idea of endearment, God is saying, Moses, 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 I care about you. I want you. I have a plan for you. Moses, Moses. And then look what the Bible says. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. You may have been tipped off to the subject matter by the beautiful song sang a few moments ago. We are standing on holy ground. God met Moses. He confronted him. Now, let's let's make sure and not forget when this is. We typically associate callings with young people, and that's not a bad thing. In fact, in our student ministry, we don't have a retreat, a weekend, or a camp without one of our pastors or leaders or one of our guests who we bring in talking to our young people about discerning a call in their life. We don't want to manipulate or pressure every young person to think that every one of them must express a call to ministry. Not at all. I thank God for young people who love the Lord Jesus and become faithful engineers and accountants, nurses, and teachers, and businessmen and businesswomen. But I do believe there is a population of young people that God is calling to serve His church, to serve as missionaries, to serve in special, wonderful ways. And it's good for the church to call out the call. The church can't call you. Your grandma can't call you. God has to call you for it to last or you won't finish. So it's a good thing to talk to young people to call. But people, Moses is 80 years old when this happens. 80 years old. I don't know how many 80-year-olds are in the room. I'll not ask you to raise your hand for fear that it looks disrespectful. But I think you would say to yourself, if you find yourself in this room and you are in your 70s or 80s or by God's grace, even in your 90s, that much of your life has been lived. You might argue that you are in the sunset years. Your career has been had. Your retirement is now there. Your earnings have come. Your children have come. Your grandchildren have come. Some of you are watching your great-grandchildren be raised and grow up and find their way. We, we typically don't find ourselves searching for 80-year-olds when we have a job opening anywhere. At the same time, Moses is 80 years old and God confronts him and meets him. Now, Moses would have known what fire is. At this point, he's a shepherd. And by the way, if you want to talk about success, not only is he 80, he's still working for his (laughs) father-in-law. You'd think by 80, he could round up a few of his own sheep. No, no, that's not it at all. He's 80 years old. He's keeping his father-in-law's sheep And God chooses to manifest itself in a burning bush. Now, there is a theme in Scripture where God often reveals himself through fire or great light. Fire is important. Of course, in antiquity, there are no strobe lights for the Lord to use. The Lord's not going to speak through a computer screen or an AI bot. No, it's fire. And we know that fire consumed. You've seen the terrible images coming from Maui and how fire has devastated and by all accounts Hundreds, maybe thousands of people are still missing and may never be found because they've, in essence, been cremated by the fire. So we know that fire is powerful and it is a good tool at times, but when it is unchecked and uncontrolled, it consumes everything in its path, which, path, which leads to two questions. Number one, if he's out in the wilderness and there, are no one else, there is no one else around, why is the bush even on fire? It would be common for me to go to a populated campsite and see campfires. It would be fine for me to walk up on a crew of of foresters on a controlled burn. I understand that there are times when men and women set fires, but there's nobody around. So, number one, why is there a fire? Number two, if there is a fire, why is it located only in one bush? And why is the bush actually not burning? It's not being consumed. And there he meets the Lord. There is this great confrontation. Don't miss the grace of this who are we that God would even come and speak to us? I mean, at this point, look at his life and look at all the reasons why he's not the guy to pick. And yet God confronts him in that moment and says, don't come any closer for you are standing on holy ground. Now, there's also something you need to see as a New Testament believer. Whenever God encounters people in the Old Testament, it is called, theologians call it, a theophany. It means some form or manifestation of God to his people. It takes on all kinds of forms and shapes in the Old Testament, but they are all a foreshadow of when God will come really close to us. You see, I can relate to a mountain. I can relate to a great fire. I, I could relate to some supernatural event. I can see those things, but I feel most close to people in my life. I mean, I've grown to love my dogs. I've grown to love trips. There are certain foods I enjoy. But when it comes to relationships, I don't think about those. I think about people. One of the great truths of Christ is that the confrontation for you and I is not with a burning bush. It's with a person. It's with a a man who is God in the flesh Who didn't say, take your feet off for your own holy ground. Who didn't say, don't come any closer. Who didn't say, you must be this or you must be that. He says, come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, all ye who are weary, For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. But we haven't got there yet. And so when this confrontation happens, it's followed quickly by a commission. Listen. In a world of cloudiness and confusion, be thankful for a God that is crystal clear. Now, he is mysterious, and there are parts of God I cannot grasp. I recognize I cannot empty the fullness of who God is into my own human finite mind. At the same time, you and I live in a world that has lost its mind and is confused about everything, and yet God's call on our life is always crystal clear. No sooner has Moses says, Moses said, here am I, God begins to speak. Look what happens in verse 6. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. To see God is to stand in instant judgment. We see that all throughout Scripture. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. So, notice the words there. I've heard, I've seen, I know. God, it's not distant to that. And then he says in verse 8, And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to, to to a land, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Verse 10, here it comes. Here's his commission. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So, the confrontation is followed by the commission. God says, Moses, this is what's going on. I have decided to move according to my redemptive plan, a plan that's already been in place. (laughs) Remember, at this point, Moses didn't understand fully why his life had been spared in the basket known as an ark in the reeds of the Nile River. Moses Moses didn't understand fully why he had this heart to see his people's mistreatment and abuse avenged. Moses certainly couldn't have understood at this point in his life why his mother could raise him for a little while. Then she had to give him up. Then the woman who did raise him had to disown him because his grandfather, by adoption, the Pharaoh wanted to kill him. The Hebrews who he tried to stand up for rejected him, and he ends up in the wilderness, not with the Egyptians, not with the Hebrews, but with the Midianites. So he's an outsider with the outsiders outside. And then God says, And this is what I'm going to do, and I'm giving you the commission. Now, I know there are times in my life where I have knelt and been confused about the Lord's will. I certainly hope that's been your case because life can be confusing and I want you to seek God. So if you're confused and you see God, then you're going to articulate a prayer, something like this. Lord, I'm facing this situation and I do not know what to do. I face those all all the time. And I'll be honest with you, while it is not the subject of this sermon, oftentimes just laying it before the Lord is all I can do in that moment until he reveals to me my next step. But listen to me, friend the vast majority of your life has been clearly laid out in Scripture. I love the clarity of Moses' call. It got me to thinking, what are the calls on every Christian's life? Well, we could list them. I don't think this is exhaustive, but I came up with six. Every Christian in this room has been called away from sin and to the Lord Jesus. If you're saved, Christ did that. Every Christian in this room is called to his baptism. We saw six people obey that call this morning. And then to his church. In other words, in the Scriptures, there is no separation between following the Lord and being connected with his people. And you know that because some of you are growing right now because you've gotten connected with our church. And you would say there was a time in your life where you had a faith that was real. You were saved, but you were not growing because you were disconnected From the body of Christ. Every Christian is called to walk in His Spirit and enjoy His presence. You don't have to leave here and worry as to whether or not God will be with you. If you are born again, His Spirit lives in you and you can enjoy speaking to Him on a lawnmower, you can enjoy speaking to Him in a pickup truck, you can enjoy speaking to Him at your kitchen table. He is with you, loves you, and wants you to enjoy His presence. Every Christian here is called to His will. You are called to obey God, and the good news is, because he understands how we work, since he is our creator, he has given us an unchanging, concrete, infallible, inerrant word, which outlines his will for our lives. And every Christian here is called to his work. You are to serve him and to be a witness for his goodness and his glory. And every Christian here will one day be called to his home, the Lord's home, to be with him. So whether or not you knew it, if you came in the room this morning, if you're tuning in online and you have a relationship with Christ, by the authority of God's Word, here are at least six clear calls on your life. And by the way, I'm going to tell you something, a little hint here. We do our worst walking. We struggle the most spiritually when we get away from these basics. In fact, some of the situations that we found ourselves in by our own Work, our own cause, our own fault, we can trace them back very quickly and say, hmm, I wouldn't be here, wouldn't be dealing with this, had I been paying attention to my call. Now, those all calls are for all of us, but by definition, if they're all calls, then they're you calls. There are calls that are only specific to you. You and you alone are called to your spouse. You and you alone are called to be the mother or the father of your children. You can be a mother or a father figure to other children, but God has called you to your children and to your grandchildren. You and you alone have your job by default. It's your job. If they give it to somebody else, it's not your job anymore. So you have your job. They're your co-workers, your friends, your neighbors. You are in charge of your dollars that God has blessed you with. Some of you are like, Lord, can I have some more me dollars? I promise you I'll be faithful with them. There are many calls that are specific only to your life. But I'll tell you something. I have always enjoyed being around men and women who have clarity about what God has called them to do. And I think it is a healthy thing. It doesn't make any difference what your title is. I'm not interested in how you earn your living. I'm thankful that you do, and I'm thankful that you care for your family. But it is a healthy thing for every Christian, not just the ordained, not just the reverends, every Christian to say, Lord, am I fulfilling your call on my life? And are there any calls you've given me that were clear at one point and I've moved away from the clarity and the sincerity with which I am supposed to walk? I love Moses' commission, but as is often the case, I don't know about you, when I feel the Lord calling me to something, I often have concerns. And we see that as soon as he gets this commission, Moses has concerns. And you can summarize the concerns in two questions. Look what happens beginning, I would say, in verse 11. But Moses said to God, here comes the first question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses knows he's 80. Moses knows he tried 40 years ago to defend some Hebrews and they weren't appreciative. Moses knows that Pharaoh, of course, the one who wanted to kill him is dead, but the administration has not changed. Moses knows that he found some outsiders who gave him a home, gave him a wife, he had children, and he has a job. He might be the most unqualified person for God to call. And he says, who am I that I should do this? Now, in the original language, we want to initially in the English assume that Moses is only expressing doubt. I think there's a pretty good grammatical argument. There's also this idea of honor. Like, like who am I that you would... That you would use me, Lord, for such a high call. I think a lot of people don't follow through with their call from God because they eliminate themselves by determining that they are unworthy. And they forget something very elementary but very powerful. Listen, your call is not about you. God doesn't call any man or woman because you're sufficient. He can't call any perfect people because there's only one perfect man to walk the earth, and he called him to death on the cross. But prior to Jesus and after Jesus, there are no more perfect men and women for God to call. And one of the forms of subtle selfishness is for you to set in the sin of doubt and not step out on faith because in humility you say, well, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. The problem is is that you're assuming that God called you because of you. He always calls you to display his glory. Now, I know that there are qualifications and expectations of people given in the Scripture. There are biblical qualifications for a man to serve as a pastor. And if a man violates those, he's disqualified from that office. I know that that is true. I believe that. It keeps those qualifications in front of our pastors. I'm not suggesting that, that God is not concerned with the righteousness of our behavior. But but outside of those qualifications given to elders and overseers, and then there's another paragraph about the qualifications of a deacon, outside of that, what we find is that God calls people to a multitude of things, and everybody in Scripture He calls is broken, unqualified, and if we sat in the HR department, we'd probably pass them over But he does this because it is in calling and using broken people that he displays his glory and his grace. So Moses' first question is, well, who am I? And then I love God's answer. Look how God answers Moses beginning in verse 12. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, so how do we build up children when they doubt? Not like this. What do we do? Oh, you're so pretty. You're so special. When they're little, I love you so much. I just want to kiss your cheeks off. Come here, let me squeeze you. Then when they get a little older and they're uncomfortable with that, you do what I do. I just blow through it and keep kissing on them, keep hugging them, right? Right? I I try to do that. I love, I live for the moment when I can let my middle schooler or my freshman get out, and I let them get about 25 yards from the truck, and I roll the window down and say, Love you, baby! And I tell them, if they roll their eyes at me, I'll come right back and say, Good job staying dry last night! (laughs) It's one of the perks of being a parent. There aren't many, but you can mess with them. The point is, there's a time and a place for people to look into the eyes of another person and say, I see God's hand on you. You have worth and you have value. That's important. That's not what God did here. (laughs) Moses says, who am I? God blows right through that question and says, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. Moses, let me tell you who you are. You're the guy that's going to have God with you. Which leads, of course, to this second question. Moses says, who am I? And God says, stop thinking about who you are and see me for who I am. And then Moses says, okay, well, who are you? And that's exactly what happens. Look at the passage beginning in verse 13. Then Moses said, God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Now, why would that be silly to us but important to Moses? Have you ever studied ancient Egypt? Like much of antiquity, there are many, many gods, and all of them have different powers and different identities. Many of them are depicted in ancient art and sculpture. You can go today and visit Egypt and see much about the beliefs and the religion of the ancient Egyptians. And so Moses knows full well when he has court before Pharaoh, Pharaoh's going to say, well, which god? And so Moses, like any human, says, I need your name. And of course, we get one of these most famous theologically pregnant passages in all the Bible. Look what he says. What is his name? What shall I say to them? In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I don't need a name like those other gods because I made the people who made up the gods. I am who I am. Now, I wish I had another hour to unpack that with you. But one of the ways I've always thought about it is this. Right now, I am in more, standing at church at the mill, fulfilling a high honor of preaching to you, which means I am not at home. I am not at the beach. I am not in the mountains. I am here. I also am a father to a set of children. I am a husband to one woman. I am a son. I am a nephew. I am a proud uncle. But that means I am not a wife. I am not a mother. I am not here nor there. I am here. Because I am human, I have to qualify my I am because I cannot be in two places at once. God doesn't have to do that. God's in Spartanburg and He's at my home. God can be a ruler, a reigner, and He can be one leading to redemption all at one time. In other words, God says, I don't have to qualify my I am I am all things because I am omnipotent and I am omnipresent I am over all things I am before all things I am the first among the living I am the first and the last I am the Alpha and the Omega I am the Good Shepherd I am the King of Kings I am the Lord of Lords I am the God who has created and come and coming again I am this is what got Jesus in trouble Many who attack Christianity say that Jesus was a remarkable prophet who may have had supernatural powers, but they will deny his deity and they will say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yet the scripture clearly tells us in the book of John chapter 8, when he is on trial, this is what he says. I'll put it on the screen. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, say it, church family, I am. Now they knew exactly what he meant, which is why, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. Jesus says, I am the I am who met Moses, I am. And so Moses has his concerns met. Moses, it's not about you. It's about me and I am. But those concerns are quickly followed by something. We see not only the concerns of his call, we also see that there's community related to his call. Remember this. God does not call people to projects. He calls you to people. God's tool in helping others come to know him is people. The Word's written. We don't have to write the Word. We can aid the Word in its distribution and its explanation. We can give people the Word, but I can't add to it. I can't take away from it. It's complete. But what is incomplete is the church. God's not building a physical kingdom. He's building a spiritual kingdom. How do you build a spiritual kingdom in a physical world? The bricks of God's kingdom are not brick and mortar that's coming. In fact, the Bible tells us that. A new heaven and a new earth is coming. But right now, the way you build a spiritual kingdom in the physical world is not by brick and mortar. It's not by paving streets of gold yet. It's by the souls of men and women. Every soul that's saved is another part of the kingdom being built. So if God is building his kingdom through people, what is he choosing to use to manifest that kingdom? People. People. So God called Moses to his people. In fact, I always picture Moses with a staff going up to Pharaoh and doing all the work. Actually, the Bible says that Moses has to go to his people, win a voice with them, and then the group come before Pharaoh. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. In other words, repeat your calling to these people. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. I have observed that he repeats the commission once again. Look at verse 19, excuse me, 18. And they will listen to your voice, and you And the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. (laughs) Moses is not just called to confront Pharaoh. Moses is called to people. Now I don't want to spiritualize this passage, but it does remind me to remind you. Tomorrow, when you go to work or you go to school, you will be with three people. I don't know who they are, but spiritually, you'll be with three people. You will be with people who know the Lord, who are walking with the Lord, and it's easy for you to relate to them as a brother and sister in the Lord. They may attend another church, that's fine, but they love the Lord Jesus, and it's obvious from the life they live. You will be with people who know the Lord, but they are struggling, they are not where they need to be spiritually. And you will be with people who do not know the Lord. Do you believe God loves those three people? I do. I believe God loves the faithful servant, the faithful sister in the Lord that you work with. I believe God loves the man who's lost his way, who deep down has a faith in Christ, but he's not growing. Perhaps sin has crept into his life. Maybe he's separated from community. He's not growing. And I believe that God loves that person So much that does not know him that he sent his only son to die that that person may have life. Let me tell you something else about those three people. They don't have my email or my cell phone number. They're not coming to see Pastor DJ. You're the person God has called into their wilderness. God has a calling on your life to people, not projects. Now, the interesting thing is is that it's not easy which we see fifth, the conflict of Moses' call. It's just one verse. Look at verse 19. God says, all this stuff's going to happen. Then watch verse 19. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by my mighty hand, by a mighty hand, which, of course, we know will be the Lord. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Moses, yes, Lord, I want you to go. Okay. And you're not going to be successful to say again? He's not going to listen. Go. You ever said that to your spouse? You can go try to talk to him. He ain't listening to me. He ain't going to listen to you. You can call them, see if they'll give you warranty on that. But I don't know about you. Everything I have under warranty went out last month. You know what Jesus said the night of his arrest? He looked at the disciples and he said these words in the book of John chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Where's peace? In him. It's not in a place, it's in him. Now watch the next phrase. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When you step out on faith in your calling, you will have tribulation. It will not go well. You will find yourself enduring things that are unpleasant that could be avoided if you just hid in the shadows of god's grace and never stepped out on faith i think this is so important to remind you church family that everything we do for the lord does not feel good and will not at first and foremost appear to be blessed we do have an enemy it's also important to remember that no sooner has he said that till we get the last part of moses call word six Completion of his call. Look how the chapter ends. The chapter ends where I will end, and we will have witnessed the miracle that I got through this whole chapter in 38 minutes. So, verse 20 I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, and after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry. And for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. He says, listen, it's going to be hard. They're going to resist, but I'm going to make sure it happens. And when it does, you're going to leave, not as slaves, but as wealthy men and women. In fact, your slave owners will give you their jewelry for you to go. I'm going to bless you beyond what is immeasurably comprehensible in the human economy of how things work. You know why you keep going? Because God finishes what he started. God is a completer. I've never shared this before on this stage, but I have a burning bush moment. I will certainly not in any way suggest that my encounter with the Lord is compared to a burning bush like Moses, and I'm certainly not Moses. He's the patriarch of our faith. But as you close your Bible, I want to take you to a place in my life. It was the summer of 2015, and I was preparing to resign as pastor of church at the mill to become pastor of a thriving, wonderful church in my home state of Alabama, in the shadow of Auburn University, where the Lord himself earned an undergrad degree. (laughs) I had interviewed for the job, the job was mine. I had told our leaders here quietly that I was preparing to leave. Laurel and I had begun to mourn that we were not leaving because of any controversy. You'd been so wonderful. At that point, it'd been about eleven years, and my, my, my it had been a ride. I'd finished all my education, and our children were kind of getting to that point where we wanted to make sure they could enjoy their high school years in one place. And it just checked all the boxes, and I had felt a unsettledness and a stirring. Couldn't put my finger on it. This church seemed to meet all the opportunities that I wanted to do. In many ways, I felt like I was going to that church to do what we had done here and to see another church experience some of the things that you and I have enjoyed. I was in Lake Martin, Alabama, a beautiful place. My in-laws have a home there, a vacation home. We always spend time there because it's free and we're broke. And uh, I got a phone call from a man who was in leadership of our church, and he notified me about something very difficult and very personal in the life of one of my staff members. And it broke my heart, and I began to weep, and I was walking on the phone. I got away from the children in the lake, and down a county road, there's a small abandoned cemetery off to the side. As an outdoorsman who spent a lot of time in the woods, I come across all kinds of stuff. I've seen many old cemeteries in the woods behind old plantation places, and Wasn't uncommon to see that, but I was standing there, just happened to be standing there when the phone call ended, and I was weeping because on one hand I knew the church that I loved was about to navigate a difficult situation and it involved people that I loved and still love today. And on the other hand, I had this exciting opportunity before me, and I I didn't know what to do. And I just looked down and there's a tombstone there. And the tombstone is a picture of it here. I've put it in the latest book I'm about to publish called in the memory of Joseph Jordan I don't know him, I'm not akin to him But this is what it says Who departed this life August 17, 1858 Aged 37 years, 8 months and 6 days I stood at that tombstone I was 37 years old And the Lord just spoke to me there I began to weep And I looked, I said I don't know this man He's been gone many, many years But he only got 37 years Lord, I don't know what to do, but as a 37 year old, this is my promise. I will do whatever you tell me to do. I went to the church that night, met with the committee, told them of the situation. They said, Hey, that's fine. The job's yours. I told Laurel, Laurel, let's go back to Spartanburg. Let's take 90 days. Let's sort this out. Then we'll move. I came back here, had to make some changes, certainly tried to invest in people and And in the midst of a very turmoil, my heart began to change. And the Lord said, I'm not done with you yet. And about a month later, the clarity came. And I told the leaders of our church, I believe God has called me to stay. but We've got to build our team bigger. We've got to build a facility. And we've got to not exist to just be one church. And I've got to rest. They said yes to every request. I left that meeting upset that I had not asked for a new pickup truck every year. And I want you to know the last eight years have been some of the most precious, incredible movements of God I've ever seen. Just last week, we set an all-time attendance record off of special holidays. Across three campuses, 4,500 people were experiencing the love of Christ and His Word. And Laurel and I lay in bed more than once or twice a month, and we reflect on how thankful we are That God met us that day, met me, and told me what to do. And I, I recognize that there's always that temptation to make the pastor the hero of an illustration. I try to make fun of myself quite often to make sure to remind you how incredibly normal I am. But I believe that God met me in that moment. And I believe there are moments in your life where he has called you and you know what to do. And then there are moments where he calls and you're not sure. There was an old hymn writer named B.B. McKinney. He was holding services with a friend of his who'd been a missionary in Brazil. And after the service that morning, he said, what's the matter? He said, well, I've enjoyed being here on furlough, but I want to go back to Brazil. That's where God's called me, but my doctor just told me my health won't allow me. B.B. McKinney sat with his friend who was weeping that he couldn't go back to the mission field. And B.B. said... What are you going to do? The old missionary with tears in his eyes said, I don't know, but wherever he leads, I'll go. That afternoon, B.B. McKinney, gripped by those words, wrote this hymn. It says, take up thy cross and follow me. I heard my master say, I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. And then I love the chorus. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go.